Good morning, everybody. Thank you guys for playing. We are indeed in Acts chapter 16 as we continue our series there. Uh, we left Paul and Silas and his team in the city of Philippi, the first location in Europe that the gospel is being spread. They led Lydia and her family to faith, and then they had this exchange with a young girl who was possessed by a demon, and Paul exercises the demon, which means the demon is gone and can no longer make money for the girl's handlers, and so they're furious, and that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 16. I'm going to start back at verse 22, Acts 16, 22, hear the word of the Lord. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, might we too believe, and might we too rejoice in so great a salvation. Praise you for this good word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, when you speak at different places and you see different pulpits, there are usually knickknacks or arrangements on the pulpits in different places. A lot of times when you are a guest speaker somewhere, something prominent on a pulpit or near a pulpit will be a clock. Like it's here and it's counting the time that you're preaching. Uh, I saw my brother Philip in a friend's church and the pastor brought him up and said, Philip, look, we've got a clock right here, and so you've got 10 minutes, there you go. And Brother Philip said to the congregation, in America you have clocks, but in Egypt we have time. And that just rocked the place. So I've never called Philip on his time before. But I have a friend of mine who was preaching at a place, and on the pulpit there was this little plaque that was one simple verse that was perfectly profound. It was actually a quote from a group of Gentiles who were talking to Jesus' disciples and they say in John 12, 21, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's what they said. They wanted to get through and they wanted to meet with Jesus. But of course, this pastor put it on the pulpit and said, 
This is what we want to see, a not-so-subtle way that any preacher that comes and speaks from this place can be asked this question, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, which is a way of saying, I don't really care how much you know, and I don't care how funny you are as a preacher, and I don't care where you've been to seminary. Today, I'm desperate for one thing, and that is to encounter the person of Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. You ask that, and so that's what we will do today. We will see Jesus in this passage as he is shown to us, as he is spoken of, and as he is enjoyed. We are going to see Jesus. So first, Jesus is shown to us. And if you think that we live in violent, volatile times, walk a day in Paul's shoes in the Middle Eastern world where he is preaching the gospel, because no sooner do they exercise this young girl than they are dragged into the town square and a mob just forms around them and begins beating them up, punching them, kicking them. The magistrates see this before any kind of trial has happened, before anybody knows what's going on. Magistrates see this, tear off their outer garments and begin to beat them repeatedly with rods until, funny enough, they throw them in a jail in order, verse 23, to keep them safe. Now that we've beaten you up thoroughly, we're going to keep you safe in jail. No wonder Paul will write later to the Thessalonians, we had suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. What a shame that we were treated this way. So we visit Paul and Silas in our passage in the inner prison at midnight. Their legs are in the stocks, so their legs are secured so they can't move around. They're bruised, they're bleeding, they can't fall asleep, and they have every right to be angry with God. God, this was your idea. We wanted to go to Asia. You wouldn't let us go to Asia. You said we should go to Macedonia. You gave us this vision to come here. And we came here obeying you. And all we've seen is one convert, Lydia, and her household. And now we're in prison. What good is this? You ever talk to God like that? The psalmists do it all the time. And frankly, I don't trust a Christian who has not complained loudly to God. We can do that. The Bible gives us warrant to do that. And I'm sure there were days that Paul and Silas would have done just that. They're sinners just like us. But not this day. This day, supernaturally, Jesus feels very near and close. This day, when everything in their flesh would want to shake their fist at God, the Spirit moves so deeply and they enjoy Him. My circumstances say one thing, but my heart says another thing. I am enjoying God. Tertullian, the early church father from Tunisia in North Africa, he wrote an essay to the martyrs about the merits and benefits of suffering and dying for Jesus. Can you imagine hearing that to have one of our published authors talking about the merits of suffering and dying for Jesus? He's famous in that essay for writing, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And he also writes in that essay, The legs feel nothing of the stocks when the heart is in heaven. 
Even when I am suffering, if I am placed in the heavenly places with Jesus, I can taste something of joy even in my darkest hour because he is present and near me. And that's a powerful testimony. Jesus is on display in this prison. And what are the other prisoners doing but leaning in to listen and to watch and to think, who are these people that are in jail with us that have suffered so much and yet they are still singing songs to Jesus? So Jesus is displayed, but then he's also spoken because what happens next is crazy. There's this earthquake and it opens every door and it loosens every single bond and the uh, prison warden who's responsible for those in his care thinks they've escaped, thinks the responsibility falls on him. He's about to kill himself until they stop him and say, hey, everybody's here. So verse 30, he grabs a light, he rushes in, he comes up to Paul and Silas and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now that's funny to me. Because a jailer is asking a prisoner, how do I have what you have? Can you imagine that? Like the jailer who is safe and secure with his family, he's actually asking the prisoner, how can I have what you have? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't it be the prisoner who's asking the jailer, man, how do I have what you have? I'm here beaten up in a jail and here you are with a nice job and a beautiful family and a pension. Like how do I get what you have? But of course, Paul's not asking the jailer for what he has because Paul is not really in prison. It's the jailer who is in prison. Paul's not in prison. His heart is perfectly free in Christ to rejoice in all circumstances. He is as free as he can be. And it's the jailer who is enslaved and in darkness and in sore need of freedom. So the jailer asks a question, and it's really a supernatural question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's not a normal question. In fact, there's a lot of normal questions that the jailer could have asked that would make more sense in this passage. They're perfectly natural questions to ask, like, Sirs, how do I have the happiness that you guys seem to have in hard circumstances? Or, sirs, did you create that earthquake, and how could I have power to do miracles like you do? Or, sirs, how do I get the courage that you guys have to have the doors open of the prison, but stay there because you're not afraid for what's going to happen next? You see, a watching world will be eager to get some of the benefits of Christ without Christ himself. And who wouldn't want the benefits that we have? Who wouldn't want love and joy and peace and power? Who wouldn't want forgiveness and courage and answered prayer and freedom from shame and guilt and the power of the indwelling spirit, assurance of salvation and eternal destiny secured, hope in life, peace in death, victory in sin? Who wouldn't want those benefits? But those benefits will come with a vital union to Christ, or they will not come at all. And the jailer, he senses that supernaturally, and he asks for the whole truth, because God gives him this question, what must I do to be saved? 
Now, if someone were asking you that question, I wonder how you would answer. Paul can answer in five English words. Can you? So today we're going to have a new members class. We're going to gather here at four and we're going to hear about the the vision of the church and where God is leading us together. And then those who are ready uh, can be interviewed for membership in front of the elders. That can happen today. That can happen next Sunday. That can happen when you're ready. And the elders will sit with you and their chief question is, is this person a born again believer that we're welcoming into fellowship? And they'll ask you something like, share your testimony, the short version with me, and they'll hear stories of growing up here and going to this place and participating here, and here I've landed at Cola Prez. And for some of you, there will be a awkward pause, and an elder will kind of lean in and say, I believe I caught where you grew up, and I believe I caught where your parents went to church, and I believe I heard what your favorite ice cream is, And I think you mentioned the crush you had in middle school. But I don't think I've heard you name the name of Jesus. I didn't hear that in your testimony. How is Jesus related to your salvation? And it's that moment of, oh yeah, I should have started with that. Paul is able to preach the gospel in five English words. Believe in the Lord Jesus. There's something about faith. And there's something about the object of my faith. If we're talking about faith, then we immediately mean it's something outside of myself. I can't do this for myself. I know in my nature that I resist God and rebel from God, that I've been running from him ever since my birth, and there's nothing I can do to overcome that. God must make a way that then I can receive, not by works, because I can't do works, but it has to be by faith. And what is that good thing to receive by faith but the Lord Jesus himself? God's way of salvation to provide for me, to take my sin and give me his righteousness. Ephesians 2.8 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. Romans 10.9, our assurance of forgiveness. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So friend, I tell you, If you are chewing on that most vital question, what must I do to be saved? God has put that in your heart. And I also tell you that if you're doubting the simplicity of that most vital answer, believe in the Lord Jesus, the devil has put that in your heart. And may God have his way. And may we together in faith hold out our hands and receive this free gift of salvation. Jesus is seen. Jesus is spoken, his clear way of salvation. And now finally, Jesus is to be enjoyed. Genuine conversion will bear genuine fruit. Don't trust a conversion that doesn't have corresponding fruit. Don't trust a person who says, yeah, 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 I know the Sunday school answer. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but you don't see any fruit, any joy, any giving oneself away for the sake of others around us. I'm not saying a born-again person doesn't sin. 
We sin every day. We sin every hour. We sin moment by moment. I'm saying that the Bible says that a genuinely converted person lives out of an overflow of this union with Christ. If nothing is spilling over in our lives, is there a fresh new wellspring within us filling us up daily? Because when Jesus is believed, Jesus is enjoyed with our whole being. You get to see that in the jailer. The jailer comes to faith in Christ. We don't even get his name, but we get to see this life bent around the person of Jesus. And that's how we know his conversion is real. One night with this guy is all it takes to see real fruit is happening. It's kind of like when wee little Zacchaeus got saved, came down from the sycamore tree and accepted Christ and went over for dinner at, Jesus went to dinner at his house, and you just get one dinner party with this guy and fruit is budding all over his life and all over his wallet. He is a changed person, and that's exactly what's happening in the jailer's life. In verses 33 and 34, I see at least four large, juicy pieces of fruit in this new convert. Number one, our text says, he washed their wounds. What tenderness in this new believer and how counterculture this act would have been. Because up until a moment ago, The roles of these two men were very clear. The world had very distinct roles for them. You are a jailer and you are a prisoner. And the only thing a jailer owes a prisoner is the stocks and a chamber pot. And that's it. And that's all I need to do for you. But at the moment of his conversion, when his relationship with God vertically is changed, all of a sudden it speaks to his relationships horizontally with the other people around him. No longer are Paul and Silas worthless prisoners. They are now precious brothers in Christ, co-heirs of the kingdom, and the jailer treats them as such. You're my brother now. I don't just get salvation by myself. It comes with a family that I'm adopted into, and these are my brothers and sisters joined to me. Now, I wonder also after he washed them and cleansed them up, and then Paul and Silas go off to do their missionary journey, what it would have looked like for the jailer in his workplace in the jail. Because all the prisoners saw all of this, right? They heard the singing, they heard the gospel presentation, they saw Paul and Silas get sent off, and then they're wondering, was this a fad for the jailer? Like, is he going to come back on Monday morning and beat us and, and withhold our rations and be the cruel person he was before? And then Monday morning, this jailer comes whistling to work and greeting the prisoners and giving them their full rations for the day and making policy changes at the jail. And all of a sudden, Jesus is no longer this private, personal savior I meet with in secret on Sunday mornings, but now he comes spilling out into my entire week and transforms a workplace because he is present. That is the fruit of salvation, even in our work and especially with each other. Number two, it says that he was baptized at at once, he and all his family. 
So he comes to faith, he's taught the gospel, then he's baptized, and there's beautiful water symbolism here because as the early preacher Chrysostom pointed out, the jailer washed and was washed. He was the one that washed the wounds of Paul and Silas. They turned around and took water and washed him, symbolically removing his sins in this sacrament of baptism because baptism is a fruit of conversion. When I come to faith, I then make this public profession of my faith in baptism, and that is a gift for me and for my household to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. That happens in his life. So he washes, he is washed. Number three, I love this. He brought them into his house and set food before them. I tell you that there's something about faith and food that just go together. I mean, from Pentecost to Philippi, no sooner does the soul say, I believe, than the community says, let's eat. Amen? We are a people who eat together. Hospitality and breaking bread and coffee and donuts on Sunday and men's wing nights and parish bring your own lunch events and chili at new members class. I started running when I planted this church because I realized you get believers together and we will eat and we will eat well and we come by it honestly. The Old Testament had festivals gathering in the presence of God and eating good food and well-aged wine. And then when Jesus appears on the scene, he's not at all like John the Baptist who is out there eating grasshoppers. They're saying to Jesus that he's a, a glutton and a drunkard and all of us together with the church today are eating and drinking and anticipating that great and glorious feast, that banquet feast when we will eat forever in God's presence. Don't trust a believer who doesn't eat good food with believers. We are an eating community. And all that happens so that, number four, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. As my good friend John Calvin says, joy is a singular blessing of faith in Christ. He writes this, Faith is not an empty or dead imagination, but a lively sense of God's grace, which brings perfect joy because of the certainty of salvation. A converted soul is a happy soul because a converted soul has found that immeasurable prize of great value. She's found the pearl of great price, She would gladly sell all of her possessions to claim it and lay hold of it because that prize and treasure is Jesus himself. Which means the passage has come full circle. We started singing in joy in prison in the stocks. We end with happy, joyful fellowship around the dinner table because we have the prize that our hearts value most, Jesus and his salvation. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, let us see you in all your splendor. Let us speak often and well of you to each other in this church and to those who don't know you. And Lord, let us enjoy you. 
Let us rejoice in happy fellowship with one another, eating and drinking in your presence, enjoying your goodness to us because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Hallelujah. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.